I was still asleep. I was. I tell you. No, it's good to be back with you. I was here in 2013. It's been six years. And I was so devastated about leaving, I just decided not to shave until I came back. So it's been a number of years. Open your Bibles up to James. And uh, I'm thrilled to be here this week and to be sharing with you out of this book. Um, I was telling the first service that started studying this a number of years ago, uh, helping a friend of mine out in California, and he's just a phenomenal communicator, <clears throat> and I'm kind of the behind-the-scenes, you know, word nerd, and he's the upfront, good-looking guy. I'm the big, hairy, behind-the-scenes guy, and we've always worked really well together. He called me and needed some help with some of the original language set stuff with James, and didn't really want to get involved with it. I had all these different studies that I was working on, um, but wanted to help him, and he's such a good friend. And so I got into James with kind of the outline and giving him some, some you know, background stuff. And I just got taken with the book. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an extremely unique letter uh, in our New Testament. Um, it's, the, it's the first letter that we have. Uh, it's written about 10 years after the death of Jesus, and, and we don't have a ton of extra time. Pastor said, I've got to have, have you out of here by 2.30, so we're going to have to really stay on point, but we have a little bit, a little freedom. It's such a unique book. Um, this letter was written, again, 10 or so years, uh, give or take, after the death of Jesus um, in, a, in a setting where the church is almost exclusively Jewish. So there's no Gentile people running around the church. Paul really hasn't come on the scene. I mean, he's been there, but, you know, he just stopped killing people just a few years ago. And so he's out somewhere, you know, uh, tent making and, and, and being taught and growing. And we know that took about 14 years. And, and so there's, there's, it's just an interesting letter. Um, you know, Jesus, most of the people that are, that are, um, you know, still alive and, and walking as Christians. First off, for Jews living in Jewish communities, you know, going to Jewish synagogues under Jewish law, you know, I mean, they, they're just still Jews living in that framework. They just accepted that the Messiah has come. And, you know, they're, they're going to the synagogue. And, um, I mean, there are people that, who are reading this letter for the first time uh, who saw Jesus die. You know, there were, there were, um, kids in the youth group whose dad used to be a leper, you know. Um, Lazarus hasn't died again. I mean, he's still around. I mean, could you imagine it? I mean, it's just, it's an incredible letter. And James is dealing with some very unique issues in the early church, which I think we can, we can really, uh, I think we can benefit from. I didn't say this in the first service. I'm a very unique, uh, at least individual um, in, in that I, I get to see the church from a unique perspective. I've been all over the country over the last, you know, whatever, 20-some years, um, 25 years. And I'm 36, just so you know. Um, but I get to see the church from a, from a really unique perspective, you know, all over the, across, across the United States, some of the globe, but all over the United States. And, and you know, um, and what we find ourselves doing, what I find myself doing is, is simply coming back to the scriptures 
and rediscovering, honestly, on a daily basis, and I think you should do that for your own personal uh, survival as a Christian in the word, but rediscovering what does a Christian look like? I'm so tired of opinions. Seriously, just quite frank about it. I'm so tired of opinions. You go out west, they have opinion. You know, you go up north, they have an opinion. Down south, Midwest, um, coast. You know, I'm just interested in what this book says, honestly. Just as flat as I can, I can lay it out for you. And so um, I want to present to you a couple things. When you get into James' letter, um, and there's, there's neat parts we'll sprinkle throughout the week. One I'll give you this morning. James, scholars say this, okay, so scholars say, James is the most aggressive, blunt, and up, upfront, almost crass writer uh, that we have in our, in our Bible. Um, he uses more military terminology and more commands than any other writer in Scripture within the basis of the context of the size of their book. James uses 50 commands, not even counting the military terminology, which is very direct. He uses 50 commands in just over 100 verses. So literally every other verse, he's like screaming at you. You're like, is he mad? He's passionate. Like, he's not messing around. And in a culture in which, and of course I'm not talking about your church, obviously, just all those other churches in the world. We live in a church culture where at times you're under the impression Christianity is so casual, you know? You know, me and my buddy Jesus hanging out, chilling, yeah, kind of thing, and yet never impacting our world. He doesn't have that perspective. And in a very unpolitical way in his culture, he is crawling down their throat with the message. So you're going to love it. Seriously, you're going to love it. If you were to break down the book, you would find that the first chapter is dedicated to um, just him laying out the gospel message. If you want to know what, what they taught for the first 10 years, which hasn't changed, how direct it is, if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, um, you know, from Jane's perspective, read chapter one. When you come into chapters two through five, which is a great part of the book, he, after giving the message, he confronts issues that are present in the church. Uh, the first issue, which we'll look at this evening, is chapter two, verses one through 13. And it's the issue of favoritism. But their understanding of favoritism and how they use that word is different than ours. So we'll look at that tonight. Super good. Really aggressive. Make you feel uncomfortable. So you want to come back. So that's verses 1 through 13. The second issue that he deals with is, in my translation, the NIV, 84 NIV, it's titled Faith and Deeds. But really, it's the issue of religion versus Christianity. Being religious versus being Christian. And he's living in a context, you gotta understand, he's living in a context of a religious culture that is extreme in every way. And he's writing to them and saying, you can be religious and not Christian. And this might be out of order if you were uh, anyone, no one's your first service, so this is gonna be a little bit out of order the way we presented it in the first service. But biblically, I can prove to you that there's a difference between coming to church on Sunday and coming to church on Sunday. You can come to church and not come to church. Any worship leader worth their salt will tell you there's a difference between singing and worship. 
You can come and sing and not worship. You can come and give 10% and not tithe. We still tithe. It's talked about in the New Testament. 10% is not. So tithing is an inside heart thing. You've probably heard your pastor talk about being a joyful giver. That's a heart thing. It's a difference between 10% and tithing. You can give 10% and not tithe. And so if you're not giving with a joyful, car, a joyful heart, it doesn't count. Now, you should still give because we need your money. But the point is, is that, you know, there's a difference. You can come to church. You can, you can get into the rotation of religious things and not, not be into him. That's not, and that's not rocket science. This is the issue that he's dealing with. In fact, um, one of my, this issue that he's dealing with begins at verse 14 of chapter two, this religion versus Christianity, religious versus Christian, begins at verse 14 and extends down to the end of the chapter, verse 26. But right in the middle of this section, oh, this is so good, he makes this statement in verse 19. If you have your Bibles, I want you to look at it for yourself. My translation reads, you believe that there is one God. You believe that there is one God. In this day and age, in this culture, of course, Judaism, which from the perspective of the one who's writing this book has been absorbed into Christianity, okay, Judaism doesn't exist anymore in terms of a religion. That God is now, you know, available in Jesus. You can't go to a temple and sacrifice animals and, and you know, observe the law and make it to heaven. That's not an option anymore. So when James is writing about you believe in one God, he's talking about the only authentic religion that is monotheistic is Christianity. All In their world, in their entire world, everyone believed in multiple gods. So to say in their culture that I believe there's one God is saying I'm a Christian. Okay, so when he says, you believe there's one God, he's talking about that kind of person, which is very factual, that says, I believe in Jesus, absolutely. Jesus, in fact, he's going to come again, and I believe he's the Messiah. I believe he created all things. I believe, hey, he's the only way to heaven. It's, it's good theology, okay? It's, it's believing the right thing. He says, you believe there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that. So what's he saying? Well, you can have a correct belief and not be a Christian. You can believe the right things. You can show up to church on Sunday. You can, you know, you can, you know, not smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do, uh, not lie, not steal, wear the right kind of clothing, pay your tithe, and not be a Christian. There's a difference between being religious and being his I love your worship leader. She's so tiny and cute and just, you know, and the way she talks and, and the language she's just, it's dead on. It's dead on. What she's talking, what we're singing about, what she's leading us in. That's the message. And it's very different from being the religious person who just shows up and sings some songs and he's here. So there's a unique kind of, kind of concept that he's talking about in, uh, in, in these verses. So I want to walk with you, and again, we're going to get through some of this this week, and we're going to bounce around within the book. But I want to begin with you this morning in verse 14. We're probably going to stay here this morning. We're not going to get down into verses 15, 16, and 17 like we did in first service. I'm not sure you guys can handle it. <laughs> no, 
I'm just teasing. But I, I want to go, honestly, I want to go deeper. We have a whole study, uh, and I basically combined two together in the first service. But I want to look with you, just really kind of hunker down in verse, seven, uh, verse 14. And this is how it reads, and let's walk through it. Let's walk through the uh, grammar. Uh, it reads in verse 14, what good is it, my brethren, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Now, there's really the only difficult part of the grammar that we really need to deal with is the last sentence. There's two sentences in verse 14. And the last sentence is, can such faith save him? And my NIV, and probably most of your translations, unless you have the 1890 Darby Bible, which I assume most of the teens do, but... um, I'm just kidding. No one has the 1890 Darby Bible. But... The second sentence in verse 14 translated, can such faith save him as a question should not be a question. Uh, And I didn't go into this in the first service, but the Greek word for no is the Greek, or not is the Greek word may. It's one of the Greek words for not or no. And there are two, that term is mentioned twice. There are two mays, two no's or nots that are used. And for some reason, the NIV, the New King James, the ESV, all fantastic translations, lump both of those into the first sentence to make it emphatic. It's emphasis. It literally says, no, no. And they do that. In, I mean, amen, amen. We've read that before in scripture. You know, you know, Moses, Moses, you know, for emphasis, they say things twice. It's how their grammar works. Um, and so they assume that, but in the, in the original language, those are actually separated. And if, <laughs> you don't care about this, but it's so cool. But if you were to separate those two no's and keep them in separate, what would be separate sentences in our, in our translation, which is what's supposed to be, it would transform that sen- the last sentence from a question into a statement. Now, you probably don't care about any of that, and you're like, why is he telling me this? I don't even understand what he's saying. Okay, I, I made half of it up anyway. But the point is, the point is, no, I didn't. The point is, He's not asking two questions in a row. It's an, interrog- it's an interrogative clause. It's a rhetorical question. All questions you find in scripture are rhetorical. And in their culture, a rhetorical question has an obvious answer. So they ask you a question, and they know, sometimes Paul will answer it, and they're certainly not, or, or, or by no means, because they're asking a question that everyone already knows the answer to. So he does not follow that up with another question. For, re, for, for, for reinforcement, he gives you the answer, which again is obvious. So what I'm trying to say is, it should read like this. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith, but has no deeds, such faith cannot save him? I mean, that's really aggressive. And again, it's, that's the way he writes. That's, he's very confrontational. What good is it? Now listen to this. What good is it if you have someone, are you with me? What good is it if you have someone who claims to have faith, but they don't have deeds? Guy's not a Christian. We're going to walk through some of the specifics, but when I hear, when I hear that, there are two different Greek words in the New Testament. Every, the translation and the meaning behind this is, is really centered on two words in verse 14. The word claims and the word deeds. There are two different Greek words for claims in the New Testament. Lego and laleo. Lego and laleo. And they're different kinds of claiming. And depending on which one is used describes a different person in the text. That may not make sense totally, but it will. Depending on which kind of claiming is going on, Lego or Laleo, it describes a specific kind of a person. For instance, when I read this, what good is it if a guy claims to have faith but has no deeds? 
I think of the person who just runs his mouth about being a Christian, but doesn't live it out. He's the, that's the kind of person. He's the guy that, you know, the boxer or the MMA fighter, and you watch him all the way up to the fight and his language and his posture and the way he lives and the way he acts, and he's, he's there's issues. But then as soon as he wins the fight, he stands up and goes, first thing I want to do is thank God. And you're like, that guy's psycho. You know? And so there, you're, there's, there's, see, when I find someone, you know, who claims to have faith, but they have, that's the kind of person that I, that I think of. Well, which kind of claiming is he using? Is he using Lego or Laleo? And you say, what's the difference? Laleo has an emphasis on the claiming. In other words, you go to, uh, a Laleo describes the boxer. Why, why does he call, you know, why, why would, uh, why is he a Christian? Because he claims that he is. Lego has an emphasis on content. In other words, I not only claim to be a Christian, people who Lego also Laleo, but they have content. They have content. Um, in the New Testament, whenever Jesus is teaching or preaching, and it says, and Jesus said, said or saith to them, it's the word lego, which means the emphasis is not on, on how he said something. The, in, the emphasis is on, you know, the content of what he said. And it describes two different kinds of people. I meet people who say they're a Christian, but they have content to that. And then I meet some people who are a Christian who just, they just say it. A uh, perfect example of this is a guy that I know, and we're recording these services, so you can't talk behind anybody's back anymore. But um, I'm from a small town in Tennessee where we're living at. We're living now. We live just outside of Nashville, but it's uh, our town's population of under a thousand. You know, probably 30 mile diameter, and uh, it's just small area. And I always go to this. I, I try to buy local and all that, and and I go to the same auto parts store, and the owner there will call him Jerry. Uh, not an evil guy, but he's just a bonehead. I mean, it's the only way to describe him. Um, he's got four four guys that are equally bonehead. And um, he owns the place, but his four buddies stay there all day long. So they all smoke cigarettes and drink coffee all day. And uh, I just, I'm just under the impression Jerry's the cheese ball. Um, he learned that I was a minister. And then he changed overnight in the way that he interacts with me. Whenever I come in the store, you know, and he sees me come in, he calls me preacher, you know. He's like, hey, preacher, praise the Lord! <laughs> I'm like, hey, Jerry, how's it going? Hey, God is good! I'm like, all the time, yeah. Hallelujah! I'm like, hey, Jerry. You know, he's that kind of guy. Well, this was a couple years ago. I was going in to get something for my truck, and I ended up slipping in when a guy was leaving. And so, Jerry, I came in under the cover. And his four buddies were surrounding the front register, and, and they're all talking, and uh, he didn't notice me. So I run in the back. I'm actually getting a mirror for my truck, and uh, I run up to the register, and I come up upon Jerry telling a joke, but he doesn't see me, and it's filthy. I mean, it's terrible, and I'm just, I'm, I actually, I didn't say this first service, but I was irritated at the guy. You know, because I could see right through him from the beginning, but so I'm just sitting there, you know, and he's telling it and being all animated. And then the, his four buddies who are surrounding the register, one of them kind of parts, and he sees me through the gap. And Jerry's not too bright. And uh, when he sees me, he, he panics and he ducks down behind the register, you know? 
And his four buddies turn around and they, they go, preacher. And they back up, you know. And I come up, Jerry comes up from behind the register, he's glowing red, and he's all embarrassed. And he's like, hey, hey, preacher, praise the Lord. And uh, hey, let me give you a discount on this, man. And he's ringing everything up and feeling all awkward. And, and I said, hey, man, it's all right, you know, it's okay. And he goes, I'm sorry for my French. I was like, not French, Jerry. <laughs> not French. See, I'm under the impression he's a Laleo guy. Yeah, why would someone say he's a Christian? Because that's what he says. Yeah, he says he's a Christian. But I don't see any content. See, Lalego, now by the way, when you're reading this, when I first read this, what good is it, my brethren, if someone claims to have faith but don't have deeds, I think of Jerry. But what was interesting, when I got into the text and started studying it, the word there for claims is not Laleo. It's the word Lego. Now, let me put this together for you. In other words, James is saying, it's obvious. You know, if you would say, well, what good is it if someone's just running their mouth, but they don't live it out? Well, obviously, we see that all the time. But James says, the religious person, what good is it if you have a person that comes to church every Sunday? They know the scriptures. Uh, they, know when, they know etiquette. They know when to stand up, when to sit down. In fact, they're so good at it, they know how to not pay attention in church and not get caught. They're the teenager that has grown up in church and knows all the right things to say and yet graduates and never comes back. You know, often I see that. I constantly have mothers who message me on Facebook or social media and pray for Jimmy. I'm like, dude, Jimmy's awesome. What's going on, Jimmy? Well, he's living with this girl, he's partying, he's on drugs, he's doing the thing, dropping out of college. And mom doesn't want to hear the truth. I wouldn't. I mean, I've got a kid. He's such a good kid. Yeah, he's not a serial killer. I, I gave you that. Seriously, not a, he's not a bad kid. He's not going to rob a bank. He just doesn't know Jesus. Well, he went to church his whole life. See it all the time. Because we all believe as long as you show up to a building on Sunday, you're good. Oh, no, no, not just that, but I read my Bible, you know, once, twice a year, and uh, I pray before my meals most of the time. You know, Jesus blesses pizza to my body, and, uh, you know, I don't lie, and I don't steal, because all that stuff makes you a Christian, right? No, it does not. That's, that's the shocking part. James says, what good is it if you have someone that comes to church every Sunday? In other words, they not only claim to have faith, but in their claiming, they give you content, they know the scriptures. They know the right answers. They know the right things to say. They've been to Sunday school. They've been to VBS. They're on the church board. See, what good is it if that person claims to have faith, but he doesn't have deeds? Now, that would really make you want to know what deeds are, because you want to have deeds. In our culture, um, deeds, American culture, deeds most of the time points to activities. Because you're going to have people that say, well, I have deeds. I go to church. I help old ladies across the street. You know, I help my neighbor mow their lawn. You know, I do my good deed for the day. That's not deeds. And I give you a different illustration, uh, the first service, an illustration that I didn't like. In fact, they're all probably lost. Had their one chance to get to know Jesus and it's all gone. No, that's terrible. I'm just kidding. That's... Turn with me to John. We'll give you an example of this word deeds. Go to John chapter five, and we'll be looking, especially tonight, you're gonna love tonight. The material is so good. James and John, 
write very similar in the New Testament. Uh, similar backgrounds from the same area, uh, probably, uh, probably related. I think they were cousins, obviously. Because um, this is the half, who wrote James is the half-brother of Jesus, and Jesus and John were cousins, uh, John the Baptist. And then you have John the son of Zebedee, and like Pastor was saying, they're probably related. Can I just quote you on that? Yeah, yeah, they're only, whatever Paul says, I believe. So um, all these guys are from the same area, probably in some sort of relationship. Anyway, James and John have very similar, similar language. And in John chapter 5, he uses the word deeds, but it's actually translated in our English translation different. It's trans, same Greek word, but it's translated works. So when John uses it, it's translated, excuse me, when James uses it, it's translated deeds. And when John uses, it's translated works. Now remember, give you the framework. James says, what good is it in all the things we do as Christians who come to church and that kind of stuff? What good is all of that if you don't have deeds? If you don't have deeds, you're not in. And that's not my idea. Hey, I want to be your friend. I'll go out to dinner, let you buy me lunch, whatever. Hey, I'm good with it. I'm serious. I'm fine. I'm not your pastor, okay? Thank God. Uh, you know, so I like you. We can be friends. But if you want to, what this guy is saying and what he is saying, you cannot call yourself a Christian unless you have deeds. Flat out. It just, it, it is not possible. Now, so what I want to do is pull you into John and, and let's look at what deeds are, how they're, how they're talked about in the New Testament. And again, in our culture, we think of deeds as activities, think good things we do. That's, that's not deeds. And let me give you this, this scenario. In John chapter five, where our word appears, Jesus has come into the temple and he ends up healing this guy on the Sabbath. You can read all about that uh, at some other time from verse one down through verse 15. Those are the details. Basically, he comes in, walks up to this guy, heals him. It's extraordinary. Uh, he was born that way. It's all kinds of details in the text that are just really cool. Um, but he heals him. So the guy runs off, and the, the leaders of Israel get kind of brought into it. They see the guy, and it's, it's, it's a long, how that kind of, un, 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 you know, kind of unfolds. But the leaders of Israel uh, become irate. They're really upset. Because the day on which Jesus did this was the... Sabbath, which was breaking their traditions for upholding the law. He didn't break the law, but he broke their traditions for upholding the law. So they're, they're irate. So what happens in the remainder of the, ta- uh, of the chapter, John records for us, is this conversation that Jesus has with the leaders of Israel over why he's just done what he's done. Let me say it again. The rest of the chapter is dedicated to Jesus giving an explanation of why he did what he did. And I think this is so awesome because when, you give an, when he gives his explanation of what, what motivated him, why did he do this, he doesn't give, he didn't give the typical, well, that's the right thing to do. Well, that's what we do. You know, when someone comes to us and says, why do you go, on, go to church on Sunday? Well, that's what we do on Sunday. Praise the Lord. See, I grew up with that. I grew up in Indiana. You know that place where like really good basketball's from? (laughs) You were late, but you got there. Bible Belt Central. We live in a different world. I wear jeans. I mean, look at me. I would have been strung up back in the 80s and 90s, for real. I mean, back when I was 
in high school, unlike the more liberal women today who wear slacks, <laughs> women were frowned upon. I was joking, sweetie. Women were frowned upon if they didn't wear dresses. No, no, I mean, when I first went to Olivet, you know, in 1995, um, you couldn't wear jeans and wear slacks. You couldn't have hair that touched your collar, couldn't have earrings, See, all that kind of stuff. I know, you're like, really? He's so old? <laughs> you know? No, it's just, it was, a, it was a different, it was a different world in which we lived. And... in terms of the church changing, in terms of, you know, why we did things, what was, you know, it was also st- structured. It wasn't, it wasn't bad people, but, you know, no one was evil at Olivet, but it was, it's different than what we have today. It's a lot different. And when Jesus, what I'm trying to get at here, and I don't want to get, get, get distracted or, or pull you in the wrong direction, but when Jesus is giving his reason of why he goes to church on Sunday, excuse me, why he did what he did in the temple is similar to why we go to church, you know, and, and why we, you know, pay our tithe and, and what's well, the right thing to do. And it's, it's you know, it's, it's what I do as a Christian. And, and again, growing up in Indiana, that's just, that's just what we did on Sunday. I mean, I, I remember growing up where I grew up in this little minority kind of Bible belt area. I mean, they didn't, sell alcohol on Sunday. Remember those days? They didn't sell alcohol on Sundays. I mean, um, some places in our area didn't sell uh, tobacco on Sundays. I mean, I wasn't allowed to play basketball on Sunday, you know, or football, play with my friends. My dad would come outside and say, it's a Sabbath. Get inside. The game's on. Let's watch it. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's bizarre. That, that's bizarre. So there were, it's interesting, hear this, when Jesus has to give a reason for why he's doing what he's doing, he doesn't mention that kind of stuff. In other words, he's not doing it because that's the right thing to do. Listen to what he says. He begins, it begins in verse 16, he healed this guy on the Sabbath, they begin to persecute him, verse 17. So Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work, that's our word, and to this very day, I too am working. Now, I, would, I gave the first service an illustration out of John chapter 6, which I won't do. But the word work in their culture does not mean activities. It means drive. How we would use it in our culture is to describe how, uh, how you work at something. Um, at, in town here, they're having a huge wrestling conference. You guys heard about this? They were like all the motels are packed with all these kids with screwed up ears and <laughs> I mean, they're all like, you know, not eating or drinking and trying to keep their weight down and parents are here and it's testosterone oozing out of the building. And uh, I was listening to, this is true, I was listening this morning, I'm having eggs and dad's telling his buddy how his son has been working at preparing for this week. Um, He's not just talking about activities the kid's done. He's talking about drive. He's talking about the narrowing of his life. Oh, he's working at it. He's focused. That's that kind of language. That's this word in their culture. Deeds and work is not about the activity. It's about the drive behind that activity. So that makes sense. So when when the, when the, the leaders of Israel come to Jesus, this is so good. 
and ask why he did what he did, he doesn't say, well, it's the right thing to do. It has to do with drive. In fact, he looks at them and he says, my father, verse 17, is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And you could translate that, my father is driven daily, and I'm driven also. In fact, what he's really saying is, whatever's driving my father is driving me. You want to know why I healed that guy on the Sabbath? Well, that's what my father would do. I came into the temple. In fact, if you go back and read verses 1 through 15, things begin to be made clear because Jesus comes into the temple and he sees this guy through the eyes of the Father. He feels about this guy the way the Father feels it. In fact, he goes on, and we didn't look at this in the first service either, so you're getting a bunch of bonus material. But in verse 19, he uses the term that we translate do. Listen to this. He says, I tell you the truth, because they didn't get it. When he talks about his drive, they, don't, they didn't understand it. So he says it again, but he uses a different word, which is very similar to works or deeds. In verse 19, he says, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. That word do is the Greek word poieo, which is, it's almost unjust to translate it do because it means to bear or bring forth. Poyeo in their culture describes how trees do fruit. Now you would look at me and say, listen, southern boy, trees don't do fruit. Trees bear fruit, trees produce fruit. An apple tree will always produce apples. By the way, and throughout the New Testament, whenever you talk about the fruit of a Christian, we don't talk about activities. You will know a tree by its fruit. If you have an apple tree that shows up to church on Sunday and says, hey, I'm a peach tree, you're gonna say, dude, you have apples all over you. <laughs> well, it's a rough week. It's a rough week. Yeah, yeah, got laid off. <laughs> I get it, it's a rough week, apple tree. You're gonna know a tree by its fruit, and that's fruit language, the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus, that's, that's the language of Christianity, this deeds language. But it's not deeds in terms of activity, it's deeds in terms of drive and what comes out of you. Look, read it like this. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can see, he can do only what he sees the father doing. In other words, he looks at them and says, you want to know why I, I healed this man on the Sabbath? Whatever's going on inside of my father that makes him do, that's spilling out of his life, that's what's going on inside of me that's spilling out of my life. So the word deeds is drive and passion and I'm a, I'm a peach tree, man. If you get around me, peaches, watch where you walk. I mean, they're sticky. That's what's coming out of my life. You take that back into our passage in James. James says, what good is it if you have a person that claims to have faith, meaning he has all the right information, all the right activities, goes to church on Sunday, but he doesn't have the heart. That's what Amy's talking. That's what she led us in worship this morning. You're not tight with him. He says, you're not a Christian, man. My absolute favorite illustration that I overuse all the time is the most from my memory as a young Christian, the most 
impactful passage that I, I've ever read. Still today, it just, the whole context, the emphasis, Matthew 25 through 27, uh, probably 24 through 27, but I think this passage is in, verse 20, or in chapter 25. Jesus is leaving Jerusalem with his disciples. He's got only a few couple days to live or a day to live, a day to live. And his disciples are all geeked out about the temple, how beautiful it is and all this. And Jesus says, don't get too attached. It's coming down. And they, they freak out. You remember the passage. So they go to the Mount of Olives and they basically just pin him down. What are you talking about? And it's very unique in the whole of the gospels. Jesus just unloads, unloads this big old long discourse about, you know, Israel being destroyed, which is the focus of um, Luke chapter 24. And then the other half of that conversation is recorded for us in Matthew, which is Matthew 25 and 26 and 27, um, or 25 and 26. So in Matthew, Jesus starts talking about the end of times. And he starts talking about the day of judgment. And I thought this was, again, this stood out in my mind so, so vividly. Because when he's talking about the horrors of the day of judgment, honestly, I'm thinking about like, I'm thinking about Hitler. I'm thinking about the Forensic Files people, you know, that show that I'm addicted to. Um, I'm thinking about the Ted Bundys and the, all these kinds of crazies and, you know, I'm thinking about the day of judgment. It's gonna be horrible. Jesus doesn't even mention those kind of people. He talks about pe people that come to church that know all about him but don't know him. He says, many on the Lord's day are gonna say, Lord, Lord, but not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, gets in the kingdom of heaven. And he says, I'm talking about preachers, those who prophesy, those who heal, you know, those who come to church on Sunday, those who don't drink, smoke, or chew, all that. And then he goes into an explanation, gives you three parables on it, and he talks about sheep and goats. Remember this passage? And he says, it's gonna be, he goes, this is what the day of judgment is gonna be like. I'm gonna separate people like, you, like, a, like a shepherd would separate sheep from goats. Goats on the right, sheeps on the left. Sheeps. Sheep on the left. And then as he's telling the story, Jesus says, oh man, it's going to be terrible because the goats are going to be bent out of shape about being goats. And they're going to call out, why are we goats? And Jesus is going to be like, you did goat stuff, you know? Goats do goat things, sheep do sheep things. And they're like, what do you mean goats do goat things? And look, and it's interesting, when Jesus goes through why they're goats, he doesn't bring up church attendance. He doesn't bring up money given or they didn't look at porn or they didn't watch this movie or whatever. He says, you want to know why you're goats? He says, do you know the way I looked at the poor? The way that I felt about the lost? What I gave my life to? What was the center of gravity for me and what I focused on? That, that isn't you. See, what I was into, you weren't into. What I longed for, you didn't long for. What I gave my life to, you didn't give your life to. In fact, as you come to the end of it, the only thing that goats have in common with sheep is goats don't want to go to hell. They're goats. They don't have his heart. That's, that's what he's talking about. James says, what good is it if you come to church every single Sunday, go through the, all the routines, do all, and, and hey, I believe. But you don't have that. You're missing what it's about. It's not about, there's, there's no amount of church attendance that can replace that. Seriously, there's no amount of money given. I, 
I don't know if I should have, I'm just going to be 100% honest with you. I have a call. I felt it upon my life. But all I've done for 25 years, because I get so tired of opinions, because every one of them are wrong, but mine. (laughs) But I'm interested in what this book says. And Christianity's become so generic. Seriously. Oh, he's a good kid. I could care less. I'm sure your kid's on a, he's not going to rob a bank someday. It's the young teen girl who introduces me to her boyfriend. Oh, he's awesome. Does he, is he a Christian? Well, he goes to church. I'm like, I'm refraining myself from getting thrown in prison. <laughs> I don't care if he goes to church. I want to know if the dude loves Jesus. They're two different things. And so, I'm going to let you out of here, but here's... I just want to be honest with you. And I, I teased the first service I asked. I said, who's not coming t- this week? And they all were just really awkward and it was weird. You know, hey, I, I totally get it. Uh, and I've been saying this more and more and more often. Um, I know how busy we are. I'm, I've got kids and I mean, sports and all that stuff is almost like a career compared to what it was when I was in school. Uh, so I know how busy things are and especially parents with young kids. Pastor said we have, we have child care this week. Um, and I know, you know, unlike me, you guys have jobs. You know, I'll be hanging out at Starbucks while you're at work, but uh, it's hard. You got to get up, especially if you have little kids, some people have to take them into the daycare. And dude, I, I get it. So we're going to be really responsible with your time this week. We're going to get you in and out of here uh, appropriately. Tonight's at six, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday at seven. I'd love for you to be here. And I'm just going to tell you in advance, we're going to come back to the word and just a gut check. That's what my dad used to call it. It's a gut check. I mean, who are you? And I'm no one to impress and I don't care because on Thursday, I'm out of here. Seriously, if you want to be fake, be fake. I tell people that all the time. I don't care. I literally don't care. Okay? I just, but what I want to do is I want to present the truth to you. And you would think, you would think if you have any sort of I do want to be authentic and be the real deal. You would be open for correction. Because just showing up to a building, that's so pathetic. I said this to the church, to the first service. We live in this unique day and age. We live in, honestly, we live in the come out of the closet generation. Seriously. And it started with this younger generation, goes all the way up to some major sports figures, where it's this day and age where people are not only coming out of the closet saying, here's who I am, no matter how crazy it is, or some may think it's crazy, others not, there's opinions, but here's, here's what I look like. And it's not only here's what I look like, but you better accept it. Now, there's issues with that. But here's how it's going to affect you and I. The generation we're walking into are not going to tolerate our hypocrisy anymore. If you live something different Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday than you do on Sunday, they ain't, they ain't buying it. Seriously, this is not the 1950s where everybody just goes to church and wears the right clothes and hides everything at home. Those days are gone. They want authenticity. They want authenticity. So just, hey, I'd encourage you to be here. And if your husband complains... Call me. Say he didn't want to come, and I'll send Pastor over to talk to him. But I think you should be here. So um, I'm going to pray for us and dismiss us. Tonight at 6 o'clock, it's going to be the best. This is my favorite. 
Sunday night and Monday night are my favorites. Although Tuesday night's killer as well. But tonight, especially, um, the favoritism stuff, it blow, I mean, just his, it's almost like he's anointed. So, yeah, come back, encourage, uh, you know, encourage, threaten, manipulate, whatever you need to do. And uh, we're going to get in the word tonight, six o'clock. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we love you. And uh, everything that Amy uh, shared with us in worship and leading us to the throne, um, I just reiterate, we love you. Um, we become so formal. Abba is not translated father. It's translated pop or dad. It's an intimate term. And we want to carry that intimacy into our afternoon in the way that we eat, in the, in the, in the television shows we watch, in the way we care for our body, in the way we talk to our children, in the way we look at our wife. We just want to invite you into the routine of our day and uh, set the tone. Let today set the tone for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And uh, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity we had this morning to gather and worship you and tell you how much we love you and then to hear from your word. And I believe it's being communicated by the Holy Spirit, Lord, and, and it's going to places that no, no preacher could ever take it. And I pray you would do so. So we love you. We praise you. Pray that you'd have your way tonight. Draw us back this evening and anoint your, uh, anoint your word and our worship and time together. And we will give you all the glory, all the praise that belongs to you. In your name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. See you tonight, six o'clock.